Hi, I'm Katrina Daniel, and welcome to Primetime Crime, a podcast for people who want to know what goes on behind the scenes of the most notorious trending crime stories and what's going on in the minds of those involved in those stories. What are the detectives, the judges, the defense attorneys, and the prosecutors thinking? You'll hear it all on Primetime Crime, the podcast. This is Primetime Crime. I'm Katrina Daniel, and time to dial it down after all the Derek Chauvin drama. So let's go to drama of another kind. Never one to disappoint, none other than Ghislaine Maxwell, who is trying now for the fourth time to get out of jail on bond. She's appealing the three prior refusals to be released issued by Judge Allison Nathan. What's new about this fourth shot? Let's ask noted journalist, reporter Ben Weeder. NBC News' Jonathan Dean on Maxwell's court appearance. Yeah, Maxwell wanted to be in court in person, and today she again pleaded not guilty. This time, her not guilty plea was to an added sex trafficking count. Prosecutors say she exploited a 14-year-old girl to perform sex acts for Jeffrey Epstein. Maxwell's lawyer entered the not guilty plea for her. Maxwell looked thin and intense at the defense table. She sat and answered just a few questions from the judge during the brief hearing. The FBI arrested Maxwell in July on charges she helped recruit three young girls so Epstein could abuse them. The new eight-count indictment now charges Maxwell in connection with four alleged victims over a decade, from the 90s through the early 2000s. Here to update us on the latest escapades of Ghislaine Maxwell is reporter extraordinaire Ben Weeder. Ben, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. There's just a lot to talk about. Let's do it. So first things first, she's on her fourth try for Bond, huh? Effectively, yeah. She's appealing, uh, appealing the third rejection. So effectively, the fourth time she's asking for it. Um, there's going to be hearing on that coming up soon. Um, and it's... Um, the request to, to get out on bond is, is in a way taken on a greater urgency because her team has also asked to push the trial back. Currently, the trial is scheduled to happen in July. They're now looking to push it back. And in, uh, in their request, they actually said that they, they think they might not really be able to, to do it until mid-January of next year. So that adds several months. And under the current scenario, that means, you know, several months where she'd remain in a federal uh, detention center, which um, she has complained about, you know, from the moment she stepped in. What are the grounds different this time? I mean, last time she offered, uh, what, 20, a $60 million bond package or a $20 million bond package. She offered to, she swore she wouldn't flee to France. What, what promises can she make this time that she hasn't already made? There's really not that much more that she can offer this time around. Uh, her team is basically sort of trying out different arguments. Uh, and there's sort of two factors I think they're saying. They're saying one, um, you know, in general, that it's unfair that when you look at other high profile people, you know, they they were released on bond, um, some of whom had, you know, similar characteristics in terms of, you know, some of the same concerns they have. I mean, the concerns they've had from day one are, um, Concerns about her finances and, and you know the ease with which you know the access she has to, to fairly substantial wealth um, and um, the foreign citizenship she holds. She's a citizen of both the UK and France in addition to the US. Um, and particularly France has been the big issue because 
France um, has made clear that they don't, their, their policy is not to extradite citizens. Uh, so if she were to flee to France, uh, you know, the thinking is that France would not ship her back to, to stand trial. She has offered to renounce her citizenship, uh, but it is not exactly clear how the mechanisms that would even work. And, you know, I think in general, some of the minds, some of the attitude of, of prosecutors, and I think, you know, this has been reflected in the response from the judge so far, has been effectively that they don't necessarily trust her. I think the precedent for this a little bit was set at the very beginning. When Maxwell was first arrested last July, um, in the early going, when they had conversations with her about her assets, about her wealth, she didn't give them a full picture at the beginning. And, and the true picture of her finances took months to emerge. And, and many of her accounts were not in her name. She had overseas accounts. They were in the, the name of her husband, who at the time we didn't even know she had. Right, um, Eve said they didn't know she had a husband. Right, so, so there was a lot of secrecy at the beginning. And so, you know, I, I can't read the minds of the judge. I can't read the minds of the prosecutors. But it does seem like, you know, from the get-go, maybe she didn't establish the most trust. Um, and so now she says, I will do this, I will do that. But, you know, it's kind of like once you've established a precedent of not being trustworthy, it's sort of hard to undo that. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, increasingly they've offered up more each time. They've offered up money. They've offered up various protections, you know, that she would stay in a residence, that she would be monitored. You know, they've even said that a lawyer would stay with her in this residence. But they haven't really, none of these, none of these offers seem to have swayed the judge much. Um, and, and the question about, you know, whether she's being treated unfairly versus other, you know, other high profile people who have been arrested in the past, you know, it's hard to say whether that will really carry any water. She's kind of hinted at that before. She maybe said it more explicitly in the most recent filing, um, where she explicitly made a sort of gender argument and pointed to a number of high profile men who had been released and argued that, you know, she as a woman was being treated unfairly. We have yet to see whether that argument will uh, will carry any weight. And, and it, it's important to note that, you know, she they will get the, 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 the current application. This is an appeal. The current application will be heard, heard by different judges. So it's possible, you know, it will be heard by appeals judges rather than the, the judge who has presided over most of the case. Maybe she'll get a more sympathetic hearing. I mean, one thing that I think is notable in, in a previous appeals hearing, uh, and this I think was related to um, the unsealing of documents in a, in a civil suit, you know, a judge, one of the judges on the appeals court said, you know, introduced the idea that Maxwell herself was a victim of Jeffrey Epstein. Um, yeah. You know, ultimately they ruled against her, but it suggested that, you know, maybe she'll get a more sympathetic hearing from the appeals court. It's possible. You know, you never know. So this, this fourth request to be released on bond is going to an appeals court as opposed to Judge Allison Nathan in New Allison York? Allison Nathan. Yep, okay. exactly. It's going to, to them. And so we'll see what happens. I mean, and, you know, I don't know if on their own they can, you know, they would necessarily be able to release her. They may just say, you know, we have to consider it again. They may send it back. I mean, there's any number of possible outcomes. Um, but we should know next week kind of where that goes and whether they uh, have any success. Her team has had, you know, pretty limited success um, you know, in what they've argued for in the criminal case. They've had some, some success. They've had probably more success in their fight over unsealing records in the civil uh, suit that has settled. She's, she's been involved in this uh, longstanding fight over keeping documents secret from a civil lawsuit that originally brought was, was originally brought in 2015 against her by a woman named Virginia Roberts Jufre, 
right. who um, is a victim of Epstein's and has accused Maxwell of, uh, of you know, of, of being basically the person who recruited her for Epstein's uh, for Epstein's abuse and and directed her to to have sex with a number of other high profile men. They had a uh, there was a defamation suit Jufre brought against Maxwell. It was, it was resolved in 2017, and much of the material in the suit was kept under wraps uh, and. You know, really, in the last couple of years, it started to be unsealed in part because of the efforts of of people like you know, the, you know, my news organization, the Miami Herald, has has filed suit to to unseal some of the documents, and others have as well, arguing that that many of these documents that are currently under seal shouldn't have been under seal in the first place, and that there is a, a right to public access. Um, she's had some more success keeping some of the materials from that case secret. Um, and and there is an overlap between that civil suit and her criminal uh, case because two depositions she gave in that civil suit form the basis of two perjury charges that she faces yeah. in the criminal case. Well, also recently, um, a judge ruled that uh, apparently many, many of those pictures used in the civil suit were too salacious to be released or to be made public. Are you familiar with that? Well, there's been a lot of, in, the, in this case, she has argued with, with some success that, that various details uh, should be kept either redacted, whether, you know, if it's words or under seal for certain things, if they relate to uh, her own personal sexual conduct. Um, you know, she's, she's fought uh, for a very narrow interpretation of what should be unsealed. Um, and it's, you know, it's one part, you know, an argument, I think, that, um, that she has privacy concerns and she doesn't want this information that isn't necessarily germane to the case out there. I think it's also one part. She understands that every time there is a salacious detail that is revealed, uh, journalists like me, you know, write stories about it. So, you know, her team does increasingly seem to be very aware of the public relations sort of fight that they are waging as well. You know, you could argue, I guess, that they always have been, but, but you know, that's certainly been a, a component of their legal fight. Let's talk about her team for a minute. Now it's gone from Bobby Sternheim. It's now there is David Oscar Marcus of Miami. Is he the most recent replacement or is he just an addition? Or who's, do we know who's lead on this? We don't necessarily. Uh, Marcus is a recent addition. He, as far as I know, is, is mostly involved in handling the, uh, the appellate uh, aspects of it. Um, and also he has served as sort of a de facto spokesperson, uh, and, and which is, which is a, a change. They, um, they, you know, in the past when I would reach out to her legal team, I, I didn't necessarily always hear back from them. You know, he, he himself hosts a podcast. He's a, he's a you know, mm -hmm. fairly public yeah. figure. I think he's, you know, very comfortable, not to say that her other lawyers aren't necessarily, but I think he's, he, he's, he's a public figure to some extent. Uh, and so I think, you know, he is handling uh, the public outreach, um, which marks a change from how the team has operated before. Um, you know, Sternheim does seem to have taken a more, a stronger role uh, in the criminal case in recent months. I mean, that's certainly been my observation. You know, I'm curious whether, you know, the idea would be for her ultimately to be you know, kind of the lead trial lawyer once, you know, once they're in a courtroom. She certainly has some experience with some high profile trials in the past. Uh, I know that she was involved in, uh, I believe it was either defending um, 
was someone connected to either the 9-11 um, attacks or, or a previous attack. She's, she's represented some high profile, been involved in defending some high profile terrorism suspects. So she has, she has somewhat of a background. I mean, not that she's a household name, but right, um, right. she's taken on a, a, a greater role. And, and I think it's fair to say that both her, uh, her writing and um, Marcus's writing have both taken on a bit more of, her team has always been aggressive, but it does seem like Sternheim and Marcus are both even more aggressive than, than some of her uh, previous lawyers, which, which isn't necessarily a knock on them. I just think that, you know, right. they see this as a brawl and they are, uh, you know, they're not mincing words. All right, let's talk about the family launched website, yes. therealgillen.com. Yes. Tell us what you know about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, increasingly we're seeing her family is really making an effort to sort of be more out in front. Uh, her brother, Ian Maxwell, there's a video of him on the website, which apparently yep. I think has been running as an ad on some YouTube videos. He has sort of become the sort of de facto spokesman. Um, you know, we've, we've had statements from him in our stories. I think they, they see this as, you know, their effort to kind of offer an alternative view of Ghislaine Maxwell to, to give a voice to her, to present her, to sort of humanize her um, effectively. I mean, one of the things that I noticed on the website is it includes a reading list of what she's been reading uh, in her federal detention center. Um, so they are really trying to um, make the case that she is a real person and not, you know, the sort of madam sex trafficker that, that has been alleged in the indictment and, uh, you know, in some of the press coverage. They're, they're really trying to humanize her and who knows if it will be successful. It's hard to know. Um, I, I mean, you know, from a legal perspective, you know, they've certainly raised this point before that they are concerned about, you know, whether they'll be able to get a fair jury that doesn't have a prejudged notion of who Ghislaine Maxwell is. I think that's the case in any high profile trial. And I would imagine, you know, the challenges you have in, in trying to understand uh, Ghislaine Maxwell and, and disentangle, you know, public's, the public's views about Ghislaine Maxwell. You think about someone like Bill Cosby, much more of a public figure than Ghislaine Maxwell was, much right, more of a household right. name. And obviously they were able to figure out a way to have a jury and have a trial. So, exactly. you know, I think, you know, the truth of the matter is for some people, Ghislaine Maxwell is a household name. Um, for a lot of people, she's not. Uh, she's not Jeffrey Epstein, which is a point that her legal team tries to make time after time. But yeah, I think the idea here is to present the idea that Ghislaine Maxwell, you've seen the pictures of her with Jeffrey Epstein. You've read the stories about her. There's more to her than that. And, and frankly, I think she has been a very private person. And so to the extent that there is this other aspect of her life, we actually don't know about it. I mean, you know, her husband is the best example. No one had any idea she was married. For several years, not just right. like three months, you know, right. for three or four years. So even her own family, admitted they had no idea she was married and they had no idea on how to get a hold of her. She had to call them and she's saying it's because she was scared and security and didn't want to, you know, um, expose herself. But I found that really interesting. Yeah, there's been a real, I mean, one of the interesting kind of um, back and forths has been, you know, the government's contention has been Glenn Maxwell. So Glenn Maxwell, you know, if we rewind to when she was arrested, Ghislaine Maxwell was arrested in a small town in New Hampshire yep. on a pretty nice, pretty nice house. Uh, I wouldn't mind living there myself. Uh, 156 acre estate that had been purchased in December 
uh, of the previous year. So she's arrested in 2020, purchased in December 2019 through a shell company. Her name doesn't appear on it. Um, we talked to people who told who were familiar with the details of the sale. Her name doesn't appear on the documents. Uh, and apparently the, the federal prosecutors have said that she actually even toured the house using a pseudonym. Yeah. Um, so she's there, you know, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, no one knows, you know, where she is. Her claim is, I was there to avoid the press. You know, uh, one of the one of the British tabloids had put out a bounty for information on on Maxwell. Her argument is, I'm there to avoid the press. The government's argument is, she's there to hide. She's there to hide from 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 everyone. Uh, you know, from the press and from from you know federal authorities. Uh, there's you know they they claim that when when federal agents went to arrest her, she initially you know saw them coming, walked to a different room. They came in, they found a cell phone of hers that had been wrapped in foil, uh, an aluminum foil, which apparently uh, some argue or some think could could have you know protect it from being detected. Um, this has been this ongoing discussion. Is she hiding from the press or is she hiding from you know the feds? I think we don't have enough definitive answer. Then you wonder why she stayed in the States. She could have hidden out in France. She could have gone to France initially right after Jeffrey Epstein committed suicide, quote unquote, and none of this would have reared its ugly head. France wouldn't extradite her and we wouldn't, we probably wouldn't go after her. No, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I think, you know, that's a, that's certainly an argument her team has made. Like she may have been surprised at the charges, but she certainly could, was not surprised that there was some scrutiny of her. Um, you know, her team had apparently been in contact with federal prosecutors um, in some capacity. They, they didn't necessarily know that they were, you know, the, the targets, uh, but they had had some contact. So, you know, that is the argument they've made. If she really wanted to flee, if she really wanted to escape, she would have. As a result, you know, she's not as much of a flight risk as you say she is. Um, and that's a fair point. Interestingly, when you think about France, uh, one thing to note is, you know, one of the other sort of dominoes uh, in the Epstein, the broader Epstein world and Epstein investigation is uh, Jean-Luc Brunel, French yeah. um, model and honcho. Right, yeah. Yeah, um, former partner of Epstein, who actually was arrested in France, not necessarily in connection with things uh, that he did with with Epstein or, or you know allegedly did with Epstein, but uh, on on sort of similar charges of sexual abuse, separate from from Epstein, but you know suggests that you know the French authorities, um, who in the past have been criticized for being kind of soft on these kinds of crimes, uh, certainly in the case of Brunel, um, you know pursued him somewhat aggressively, which which I think for many, many observers came as actually a little bit of a surprise. Yeah, considering that they let Roman Polanski and an attack on a 13-year-old live there for 40, 50 years, whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, you know, historically, France has not, um, you know, has not been as aggressive in pursuing these kinds of crimes um, as others. Uh, and so, you know, I think there was, a, you know, there was a sense that maybe Brunel would just live there uh, for the rest of his life. And, and, you know, it would be kind of this open secret that he was there and he would be kind of untouchable as long as he was there. So it's kind of interesting. And one kind of interesting sort of weird footnote in one of uh, Maxwell's team's filings uh, in response to the question of her fleeing to France, they actually said that Brunel's arrest um, was actually a strike against the idea of her going to France, suggesting that perhaps, you know, Brunel would have been someone maybe she would have stayed with if she went to France. Um, you know, it, it was kind of a, in, on the one hand, it was sort of a throwaway comment and a footnote. On the other hand, it sort of raised the idea, which frankly, I, I hadn't necessarily considered 
that Brunel's presence in France was one more reason she might be inclined to go there. Interesting. I hadn't considered that either. Ben, thanks an awful lot for taking part in this. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again because I don't see this going away anytime overnight soon. Do you? No, no. I think uh, the, the intensity is picking up and, and um, she will be making her first appearance in court in, in the, for, for the first time uh, since she was first arrested. So the intensity in this trial is only going to pick up. Thanks for listening to Primetime Crime, the podcast. Follow us on Facebook at Primetime Crime and on Instagram and Twitter at Primetime Crime underscore. Post your comments and tell us what true crime stories you'd like to hear about. Subscribe to Primetime Crime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Thanks a lot.